Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be concluding the coverage of the Judge Rotenberg Center in Canton, Massachusetts. Let's get right to it. I want to kick things off by thanking you guys for hanging in there as we went through this series. I know it wasn't your typical true crime series, but I also knew that this audience would care deeply about what is happening at the Judge Rotenberg Center, and I wasn't disappointed. You guys are the most caring audience, and your support, encouragement, and response has been felt and appreciated. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. This story wouldn't have been possible without behind-the-scenes support, from Lydia Brown's repository to Jennifer Masumba sharing her story, Emily Titan over at Occupy the Judge Rotenberg Center, and those professionals in the field of behavior analysis who have shared their resources, been available for questions, and vocal in their opposition to the Judge Rotenberg Center. The many advocates for disabled rights who fight tirelessly, like Shane Newmeyer, or Kate Jones and Tara Vance at Neuroclastic, and the autistic community who welcomed me with open arms and shared their knowledge and insight. This has been an experience I will never forget. And y'all, this is just a short list. There are countless individuals who contributed to this series on the JRC, and I appreciate each and every one of them. I knew coming in, I was way beyond my pay grade. But they were always coming in clutch, dropping knowledge bombs, and I learned so much from them that I wanted to share it with you. So without further ado, let me pass the mic off to just a few of those who were instrumental behind the scenes. First, let's go out to Sam and Eric at Hops and Hooves Podcast. Sam, Eric, go ahead and introduce yourselves and tell us all a little bit about who you are and what you do. Hi, my name is Eric Zysig. I am the, what am I, Sam? The, <laughs> <laughs> he is uh, the Eric of the podcast. I'm a co-host of Hops and Host podcast. Mm-hmm. I'm also a board certified behavior analyst. And licensed behavior analyst. I'm also a licensed behavior analyst. Eric is also the director of training and development at Adventures with Autism. Mm-hmm. And co-owner of a pig named Orwell. <laughs> <laughs> Take care of a pig named Orwell, who's quite plump and juicy. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of goats. Yeah. Farm dog. Yeah. Also known as Barefoot BCBA because he runs without shoes on and it's weird. But yeah. And on occasion. Weird. Not as much as I used to. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I've been in the field of ABA in some form or fashion for... A really long time. Ooh, uh, over 20 years. Oh boy, Worked in public schools for a long period of time, working in special education and then also in general education, kind of working on school-wide systems for behavior support. Um, and along the way, I discovered, I guess I, I guess the way I could put it is ABA is not the only way of doing things. Um, 
Can you believe that? Blasphemy. And, and, um, you know, we in the field have a tendency to be very protective of the field and protective of the science and protective of our own egos. And um, what I found is that it doesn't really behoove us as professionals and as a field to have this hardline stance of the science is the only way of doing things um, and that there's a human part to what we do. In the past, I guess, few years, especially since I've came here to Oregon um, and been around Sam, it's really been more about how can we bring the human side to the science and how and the things that we do. Um, and that kind of led us down this road to really advocate for the clients that are in the field and those that are getting the services, professionals that are also in the field that feel like they're getting bullied and pushed to do things that they really don't feel is the right human thing to do. Um, and that's led us again down even deeper in this this hole that well, now we live in a Black Mirror episode, um, Yeah, where the field is really, I guess, defending. I don't even know defending is the right word. Fix, fix things from within. Yeah. So on that note, I'm um, Samantha Parnum. I'm a board-certified behavior analyst and a licensed behavior analyst and a certified clinical trauma specialist with specializations in addiction and organizational trauma and blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm also now a PhD student because I decided to add that to my plate. I'm the um, owner and founder of Adventures with Autism. We are a trauma-aware neurodiversity affirming ABA business in Salem, Oregon. And I am co-host of a podcast with Eric. Uh, I'm also known for my incredibly bitterly worded emails to people who like to perpetuate systems of injustice. And I think kind of what Eric said, right, is that I think the older you get and the more you see in this field, and I myself, I always joke that I've been fired from, I think, five ABA companies um, because I, I, I've i always very much felt like you put the, the humans first. In our case, it's the tiny humans, and that's what we call them. But the tiny humans, and they come before everything else, and that includes profitability and bureaucracy and paperwork and politics and whatever that looks like, which I think is not a very common thing in the medical field in general, um, especially not for ABA, because as I mentioned earlier, BCBAs tend to be sort of arrogant because we know how to understand the world we kind of operate in. And we forget that that arrogance does not give us the right to just like vomit onto the world and hurt people because we can. Mm, so yeah, so that's kind of Eric and I, I think, in a nutshell. Oh, I also yeah. have a well, farm and a diner. <laughs> you know. Yeah, and a ton of yeah. animals. Lots of animals. Mm -hmm. I think through the the work that Sam and I have done together over the last couple of years, that led us down this path to create a nonprofit, which really allows us to do all of these things. And try not to get um, sued. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so our nonprofit is called Hops, Hooves, and Humanity, mm -hmm. which... Uh, addresses several different things. We do some uh, animal rescue uh, for animals that are having what you, what they, severe behavior, severe behavior difficulties, mm -hmm. uh, displaced animals. Of course, we took in a couple of roosters that were fine, but you know, they just needed a new home. <laughs> um, but then we also do a lot of advocacy uh, for the field, basically, mm -hmm. to make the improvements that need to be made. Yeah, we, uh, I, I joke that I got a uh, private equity funds 
found like founder or something on the phone within three days because I was like, here's what we're not doing with our eight billion dollars. This mm. um, and was able to kind of start to hopefully very slowly, but create some change that is away from whatever the hell we used to do as a field and towards like an integrated trauma aware neurodiversity affirming place of happiness. But do you ever sleep? That's my question. Amazingly, sometimes yes I do. With with a little bit of help. Yeah. We live in Oregon. (laughs) There's um there's freedom to do yeah certain things in Oregon (laughs) that you can't do in other parts of the country. So yeah, so. and I actually sleep, you'd be surprised to know that I actually sleep like seven hours a night. Oh my God. You're like, you're like yeah. superwoman I, here. I have ADHD and PTSD, which I think, so don't like look at me and be like, oh my God, I should do all that. It's really unhealthy. Right. I have ADHD too, but I just like, you know, feel that shit with Red Bull. <laughs> so how did you guys uh, first become aware of what was going on at the Judge Rotenberg Center? Um about this question I don't think I could tell you the first time I heard JRC specifically mentioned but our field very much sort of has a I want to say a quiet undercurrent that is there are there are individuals who engage in really significant severe life-threatening behaviors and there needs to be treatment for them and there is only one place that treats them and this place does it well and that's kind of what we're told you can, if you push a little bit, get some like, well, yeah, I mean, they use contingent electric shock, but it's, you know, these are the the people who are trying to pull their own eyeballs out or, you know, you're, and you're literally in fear for their life. And I think because in this field, most of us who have been around for a while have had clients where we've experienced something similar to shit we have to keep this human safe and we don't know how to keep them safe because they're engaging in something, right? And we know if we can get in there and get some skills taught that are a replacement skill that will have some luck, but trying to get there, you're always running risk analysis of like, okay, if he, they cracks their head on the door, we've done permanent damage. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like this, dark like an elephant in the room that's covered in a black cloak that they tell you has to be in the room but don't really want to tell you anything about it when the fda's uh, court ruling was appealed i started to read it i think i was traveling so i was sitting on a plane and i was like what the hell is this and that was when i sort of it started to click in like you should probably know more about this like this is the fda it's not like podunk police department and whatever you know, Chicago yeah. was like, this is stop it. It was like there was an incident where somebody got right. shocked. And right. then like, oh, it's the one-time thing. Right. So I kind of, I pulled the FDA briefs and I'm known for, again, ADHD diving into holes. And I was kind of talking to some other people in the field. And I was like, hey, Eric, we're going to commit career suicide. Are you ready? And of course, because Eric is who Eric is, he was like, sure, what are we doing? Um, <laughs> I just asked you to explain a little bit more. (laughs) No explanation. Let's go. um, And what we did was we sent a letter to uh, the JRC as clinicians that kind of said, here are all of our concerns. We as clinicians are not going to tell you what to do or not do. We don't know every specific situation and we can't even pretend to know because that would be arrogant of us. But 
What we do know is that trauma research and the impact of trauma is much more well-known now. And we know that there are different and better ways. And we know that transparency should be a thing and that like effective treatment, you know, you need to tell us what's happening if you are going to use our field as your, your cover, right? If I'm a BCBA and you're a BCBA, I have every right to know why and how you're making the decisions you are and question you on them, right? Because we expect that at our place. If Eric makes a clinical decision, I'm like, what to do and why'd you do that? I don't like it. And then we talk it through because these are human beings, right? So we sent the letter um, and I'm real annoying. And we sent that letter really before we had really investigated. Yeah. Yeah, and, I didn't know and, how and, bad learn, it was. and we didn't really know how bad it was mm -hmm. at the time. The letter was written basically as kind of a blanket. Hey, we don't like all of this. Here are some suggestions of things that you can do. Mm -hmm. Here's help, help. We're going to offer you help. Yeah, we, mm -hmm. we're trying to offer you a little bit of help and suggestion as other people that are in the field with experience with systems and that kind of mm -hmm. thing. Like, here's some things that you might want to do so that you can, you know, really provide the do, do better, provide the best services, make sure there's that the consent is taken care of, making sure that just quality care is being provided, mm -hmm. right? Like, we're not trying to like, we're not trying to tell people how to be right, clinicians. Right. I think that's always been our thing kind of where at our clinic is that we are all good at what we do and we all have very different opinions. The reason that the tiny humans that see us get such good care is because each and every one of us is like committed to what we know and how we do it, but also committed to making sure that we're not wrong. So we argue a lot. Like the, I feel like Eric and I, or you know, you and me and Lizzie and you, we just bicker about all of the programming because we're like, wait, how do you make sure you have consent? Okay, you have consent. Do you have assent in that moment? What are you going to do if you don't have assent? Why would you teach that skill? Why would you put your hands here? All of that. So yeah, so the the letter was sent in hopes that they would be like, oh, other people are listening. Let's at least pretend we're listening them. And I'm an asshole, as we all know. So I also then sent an email to the human I just called Dr. Evil now. <laughs> he has a name, but I won't speak it because I don't like it. Um, and I said, hey, as a clinician, I have clinician questions and I want to talk to you about it. This is what I'm supposed to do per my ethics code. You're shocking humans. I am a trauma specialist. I'm here to let you know you're traumatizing people. Can we talk? And all I got was a whole bunch of mansplaining responses that said, you just don't know anything about refractory aggression, to which I said, um, I was like, yes, I do. And you're full of shit because, you know, we've been in the field for a while. So we requested that the JRC hook us up to the GED4, which is what they're mm -hmm. using, and shock us. We're clinicians. If you want me to sign off on the use of this equipment, I feel like I need to know what it feels like. Yeah, I mean, let's do our due diligence here. I mean, we, you want us, you want everyone to be on board with you. Mm -hmm. You want to give us a song and dance tour, great. Mm -hmm. um, no, I want to experience what the people that are right. in your, getting your service are experiencing. Right. Give me an application, please. Yes, an application. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was kind of like, I, I, as someone with a relatively significant trauma history, was like, this at least puts me in a bit of a place that can say like, how traumatizing is this? Eric and I could figure out what it feels like and then really have the conversation that is like, okay, what is this line? Like, is, is there a time when this is acceptable or not? And 
we want to say no, right? But realistically, I have no idea because we don't even know. So I sent Dr. Evil emails every day for a month, basically, with just questions about policies and procedures um, until I got summarily dismissed by, what was his last email to me? I can't remember. I made him real mad, though. I think they just said they were going to disengage from the okay. conversation. They were disengaging from me. Oh. Um, yeah. So that's kind of... I think we were still offered a tour. <laughs> well, we were offered a tour, but somebody else was going to give us the tour. It wasn't going to be him anymore because he was all done with me. Oh, man, how dare a stupid woman stand up to him? It's you know, absolutely unacceptable. You don't know no. what you're talking about, Sam. You nope. know, not not a clue. I'm just a dumb woman. And, and that's how everyone's treated. Basically, mm -hmm. everyone who doesn't work there, they're treated that same way. Board members have the same line mm -hmm. of, well, you don't understand what it's like to, to deal with these kinds of behaviors. Uh, I remember learning about, I don't think specifically it was JRC at the time. But I remember going through grad school and reading in mm -hmm. what's, what's basically called like the, the ABA Bible, yeah, it's right? The white book. I we call it the, the, it's called the white book, which is that's the, the basis for all the curriculum in, in master's program. Um, because I remember in graduate school reading about it. And it, but it was very like, it was just kind of like, uh, eh, it's a thing that happens. And when you go digging further, you're told, well, this is really only for the most extreme of the mm -hmm. extreme, right? The most injurious of the self-injurious, the most aggressive of the aggressive. No one ever, really ha ever has to do this, and, but it's something that we support as a field because it's necessary, mm -hmm. right? If they, if they don't get this treatment, then people are going to die. Mm -hmm. So, oh, okay. I mean, not that knowing any fair. better, sounds, sounds fair. Um, let's roll with it. And then every once in a while, it would kind of pop up in Facebook groups here and there and everywhere. But again, we were always told, Remember, this is just for the most severe, and not everybody gets it. And we were highly trained professionals and all that mm -hmm. stuff, yada, yada, yada. I think to add to that, right? Because, mm -hmm. uh, Leah, you know, you've heard us talk about how ABA is kind of like a cult, right? Yeah. Um, so our, we do have a new ethics code that comes out next year. But the ethics code that we were all taught, it has a whole section that says, the behavior analyst's ethical responsibility to the field of behavior analysis and this is what most people use these days to threaten me or whoever mm -hmm. to shut up, right? They're like, well, you're not um, upholding your ethical responsibility to the field. And what it says is, let me see specifically, um, the behavior analyst has a responsibility to support the values of the field, to disseminate knowledge to the public, to be familiar with these guidelines, and to discourage misrepresentation by non-certified individuals. So then affirming principles is the behavior analyst upholds and advances the values, ethics, principles, and mission of the field of behavior analysis, participating in both state and national or international behavior analysis organizations is strongly encouraged. Well, our, our organizations support JRC. Right. So yeah. like we're not, we have to join these organizations and these organizations that are disseminating and doing the thing support the use of this so we're literally basically indoctrinated to say a you have to uphold the field b you have to join these organizations and c you have to do what these organizations do because they are have the values of what they're doing and if the value is be as extreme as you need to be yeah well, so be it Leah, realistically we could change most people's behavior to do most things i could teach you to train 
marshmallow, your cat, what was it? Jellyfish? Jellyfish. <laughs> yeah. Toast, right. We can teach you to teach jellyfish all kinds of tricks because that's just skills that we have, but that doesn't mean I should. Right. Like, right. I can make Eric stand up right now very easily, but I shouldn't because that would be awful and causing trauma and all kinds of bad things. But the JRC has the worst of the worst. And that's the only way it can help. And there's nowhere in the world and don't question it. Move on. Or that's the claim that it's the worst of the worst. That's the claim because I I mean, now they're taking students with ADHD. Jennifer Masumba was a student. Is it really the worst of the worst? I mean, is that really who's there? At JRC, we're all kind of thinking of our humans who struggle the most, right? Mm -hmm. They're usually our kind of older humans who maybe are not able to communicate super fluently and get their needs met and have learned these very specific ways to get their to get their point across, which also places them in severe danger. We've all, for the most part, if you've been in the field, we have those. We have these conversations a lot. So our vision in our head is there was a facility in Vegas that I worked at once for adults that we're talking locked down three sets of doors, all the clients were two or three on one. Pretty much everyone had like protective gear on and helmets. It was an awful place, but that's what it looks like in my head when I'm just told of it, right? It's right. like pretty much at any time when you go in, they used to say, okay, pull your hair up, take your shoes off, put these shoes on. I need you to wear this jacket, zip it up, take your earrings out. I need you, like you can't have anything hanging off of you all of these kind of things. So you're like, okay, I mean, I've seen places where that might be the case. But then you find out that like these poor people are like conversational and very able to get their needs met and their needs are, please fucking stop it. Right. <laughs> exactly. And it's it, like the first time I saw that video of um, Andre, Andre, I can't remember if I cried first or through my computer. And I didn't right. even see it until right. this year. Yeah, and this is like, this is new for us. Yeah. Like, how? <laughs> yeah, like it's still just the thought of it, like makes me want to lose my shit. I can't, so yeah, Eric has something pulled up. Um, I mean, I got all kinds of things pulled up. <laughs> I mean, there's just ethics violations abound. I pulled up the our ethics code because a lot of things that are going on with JRC, there's several ethics violations that are at play and have been going on for years and years and years, mm-hmm. like the systemic ethics violations. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the research that they put out, which they put out their own research, which is gross. So much, somewhat problematic in and of itself, mm-hmm. they don't publish in ABA journals. They publish in outside trade journals. And they have their own little, little website where they publish all their research. But, you know, they, they tout their research like, and to, to show that what they do is very effective. Mm-hmm. But there's so many problems within their research methods that this is ethics violations abound. Yeah, uh, if my goal is to modify your behavior, if I'm doing behavior modification, and right. I want to modify the rate in which you engage in a behavior... Shocking you will work very, very well, very, very quickly. Yeah. You will be traumatized. You will do other things. You will not have any replacement behaviors. And none of that is what we want. We don't do 
that. We teach replacement behavior so that people can be happy and healthy and get their needs met or, I don't know, make an angry face. Like is that aggressive posture. Aggressive posturing, which is my whole life. Like I just am an aggressive posture. So. But I, like, I, I, just, just an example of something, and this is something that you mentioned in your, your, your previous episodes, where you talked about the behavior rehearsal, right? Mm-hmm. And that whole, I mean, there's, there's sound science behind the practice. Don't get me wrong, right? Mm-hmm. But the way it's implemented at JRC is not the way it's intended to no. be. And it's trauma-inducing. It's trauma-inducing. So they're it's basically violence. setting up. Yes. Right. They're setting up clients to engage in behaviors so they can receive a shock. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. And I think, <laughs> like, so from a trauma perspective, and I always give the, the alligator Mm-hmm. statement right so Leah if there's an alligator and it shows up in your bedroom right now what do you do do you want me to be honest yes I hunt alligators so I would <laughs> so what do you do I would get the alligator okay so it's right behind you right you're gonna oh, get shit. the alligator yeah you're gonna engage in a certain set of behaviors that gets you to either not die or kill that alligator yeah Okay, if that alligator is in a room with you and is constantly trying to eat you for an entire year, what does your system do? Shuts down and becomes angry. Uh (laughs) So imagine that it's not an alligator, but it is a backpack that can shock you at any time that you have no control over. That's your alligator, right? So from a trauma perspective, they're literally putting these people into permanent fight or flight, which results in literal complete dissociation because if you have no control over your settings, your surroundings, anything that's happening to you, your system by evolutionary standards will do whatever it has to do to make you survive. Um, and Jennifer talked about uh, a couple instances where they, she had to act in a certain way, right? That's mm-hmm. called phonics. She was doing what her body told her to do to stay safe in the moment. If I can make the other human happy, that human's not going to hurt me. It's really common in domestic violence survivors. You'll see it in a lot of us. Because once you've figured out that you can't fight, because you get more shocked more, you can't flee because they catch you, especially in Jennifer's case. The only thing you have left is to freeze permanently or fawn or to bounce between completely disassociated and fawning. Or find some other behaviors that aren't gonna, you're, you're not gonna get right. shocked for. Right. Hopefully not get shocked for. Yeah. Jen Only talked about that too. Yeah, she talked about that too. Having, every time she would master the behavior plan, they just change it. So there was always a reason that she could be shocked. There's always an alligator. Yeah. And if there's always an alligator, your system cannot learn new skills, right? Like. Think of the last time you had an adrenaline rush, whether it was you almost got hit by a car, you were almost T-boned. Um, what are other common things that create? Um, Your kid crashes on their, on their bicycle. Yeah. That was yesterday. Your kid crashes on their bicycle. If that feeling that happens right after that is your permanent state of being, everything shuts down. Your body is a, starts to adapt to survival mode. So your right. heart rate gets permanently higher. Your endocrine system is slows everything down. You don't need to process food and calories. You need to live. And there's an alligator. You can't live, right? 
your brain chemistry changes. Like that neuroplasticity says, okay, we don't need these specific synapses in here. What we need are the ones that keep us as safe as possible. Let's build those up. Yeah, it's about immediate survival, not yeah. long-term survival. And that stays forever. I mean, your body system is 10 years behind your brain. So the moment your brain realizes that you're safe, your internal systems are still going to take another 10 years to catch up. So you will forever have triggers that happen. Like Jen talked about the Velcro, right? Mm, For right, me, right. it's the smell of Jägermeister. <clears throat> This, I mean, that was years ago, but we're talking 10 years post-trauma that your system, which is always responds faster than your thinking brain, catches up and tells you Velcro is not an alligator, wow. which is what PTSD is. Yeah, and they're completely innocuous stimuli. Yeah. I mean, you would never think that Velcro would be a triggering no. thing. Through, I mean, through learning, now Velcro has now become the stimuli that's the trigger. Right. Right. And I mean, I think those triggers are so generalized because in trauma, right. there's these collapsed categories, right. right? So I was a domestic violence survivor. So my list of triggers is super long and involves everything from red trucks, balconies, the smell of Jägermeister, uh, free bird, the song and men for a long time, men were not safe because my body said that's an alligator. If it looks like an alligator, if it sounds like an alligator, it's a fucking alligator and you aren't safe. So I just stopped engaging with men in a safe way, right? And I, those frames have to be diffused very specifically, but that's not an easy thing to do. And still to this day, someone will do something, like poor Eric one day, literally sitting in my office, pulled his chair in so that he was sitting next to me and it basically blocked my exit. 10 minutes later, I was like a full on raging snappy bitch. And I'm like, he's like, are you okay? Like, what did I do? And I was like, oh, I can't get out. I was like, you're blocking my exits and I'm triggered, right? And like, this was years ago and these things still happen. So like, imagine if you've never even been taught, hey, what we did to you was a little traumatizing and you just have to live your life wondering why you're completely panicked. Or if you don't have the language ability to be able to communicate that, you, now it's all locked inside of you. It's not coming out. Mm -hmm. And that's another torture in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So yeah, sorry, rants moment. <laughs> no, it was a good one. And why specifically do you guys think that the field of ABA has not specifically spoken out against JRC and in some cases actually support it? Because there's these really fun systems in place that are power, privilege, and money, right? And I think from our research, JRC brings in, well, how much is it in revenue? Is it 30 million? I thought it was more than that. A year? Yeah, right. I mean, even if that's an underestimate, $30 million a year. Mm -hmm. And um, on their board, Eric, what about uh, you know, the people who represent ABA on the JRC board? Old white men. Oh, oh, weird. We know about BCBAs in general, particularly older and very privileged. They're not very open to... Um, they're not open to being questioned, mm -hmm. being challenged. Mm -hmm. Feedback. Um, feedback in general, mm -hmm. unless the feedback is how awesome they are. How oh amazing God. that they are. You do such a good job. So good, so good for your work. Um, so I think ABA, like any system, right? While our field is something like 70% female, the top of our field are men. And those men have been around since Matthew Israel was an acceptable human being. 
right? One of the humans that sits on the JRC's board, like I literally despise, he gave a keynote address at a conference and referred to women as bitches and all kinds of derogatory names and did nothing, just disappeared for two years and then gave $100,000 to ABAI and now has a lifetime achievement award. What? Yeah, that person, it's just so, it's just such a fucked up system that, I mean, when we said we're, this is upcoming in career suicide, we meant it. Like we're waiting for the onslaught of our own professional organizations to file right. complaints, <laughs> to come and try to yank our certi- certification. I'm, I'm surprised that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, but. because the systems that be don't want anyone to be able to question what's happening. If you're a baby BCBA, chances are you work for a large company that puts profit over care and you know that if you do anything publicly like speak out against ABAI or JRC or APBA that you're most likely going to lose your job then you lose your ability to feed your family you're not going to speak out publicly because you have to feed yourself and your family and you have to have a job and I think because the powers that be are that strong, most people are too scared to even question what's happening. Right. And what happens is, or what's happened on several occasions, is the power and influence is so strong and so connected that if I am a, a clinician working at a large company, and let's say I get on social media and I start talking about the things that do concern me, there's people that are out there that are actually monitoring my social media and then telling me what I'm saying and doing is problematic Eric, for myself will, and for the company and we'll, and we'll shut it down. They will read your email while on the 14th hole of a golf course. Right. And so what you have now is leadership in the field are doubling and tripling down on the stance of, well, yes, the things that we did were harmful. Maybe harmful. Or maybe harmful. Um, but the research is sound. So there, even though we're, you know, quoting 40 year old research, it works. um, It's very effective. And we need to continue to support the field of ABA because remember all these things that Skinner came up with and Lobos came up with works. Um, And so, yeah, being a a young BCBA in the field, you don't want to push up against that because, you know, you want to, have a career and you want a, a life and I'm not going to speak out of turn and go against what my leadership says because I, I want longevity right I mean we have like I can think of in just this year there are presentations that have been given that we're saying oh well we can't let autistic people stim because then we'd have to feed them more and we have to we have to fight against the people who are advocating for getting rid of all ABA we have to, I mean, we've, we've heard clients come on podcasts and talk about how awesome ABA is. We've heard autistic adults be manipulated into saying things about ABA in the positive because we're so insistent on keeping this shiny veneer of how amazing we are that we can't possibly stop and be like, whoa, hold the fuck on. Maybe some of this is harmful. How do we go back and fix it? Even if we maybe, and this is a, such a small maybe, have to be a little less effective 
if we have to be a little less effective and a lot more humane, that's what we should be fucking doing. Right. I don't know. Black Mirror episode, y'all. So I'm telling you, that's what I'm living in. I want to thank okay. Sam and Eric so much for joining me today. Um, can you go ahead and tell everyone where they can find you in case they're wanting more? <laughs> well, if you want to find us to help, you can uh, send us emails. There, It's Samantha at hopshoovesandhumanity.org or Eric at hopshoovesandhumanity.org. Um, if you want to tell me that I can't possibly know anything about ABA and that I'm a terrible human, go ahead and uh, write it on a piece of paper and then light it on fire because we don't care. Um, <laughs> You can also find us. We have a Facebook and an Instagram. Um, we have a website, hopsubesandhumanity.org, uh, and we're working on another website to sort of help with Lydia's, uh, all the work they've done on the Living Archive. Um, so we'll have that one up and moving soon. Um, and if you want to come pet a pig, you can be nice to me and call me and I'll let you come pet Orwell. The next time in Oregon, I'm, I'm totally coming to pet Orwell. We also name um, our our male birds that are useless after really problematic men. So, you know, we have a couple roosters with names that I won't say now, but if you would like to name a rooster after a certain, you know, person or seven that like to shock people, that would work. Oh, I'm so down. Yeah. All right. Thanks again for joining, guys. Thank you. All right, let's take it on out to Brian Middleton, also known as the Bearded Behaviorist. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know a little bit about who you are and what you do? Okay. My name is Brian Middleton. I am a board-certified behavior analyst and licensed behavior analyst in the state of Tennessee. I have been certified as a behavior analyst for just over a year now, and prior to that, I was working as a registered behavior technician while I was gaining my experience hours, as well as a special education teacher. I was a seven-year special education teacher before leaving education to focus 100% on getting my certificate as a behavior analyst. Um, and in my time as a special ed teacher, five of the years of that was working as a behavior special ed teacher at, with the wonderful age group that is the middle schoolers. Um, and so I was working with a lot of challenging cases with, with children. Um, and that's how I came across behavior analysis is part of my backstory is that I am also autistic. And uh, so being a special ed teacher and autistic, I had a lot of understanding of how it is and what it's like to be in those situations and to have what is termed abnormal psychology, but later has been, I've realized is neurodivergence. I can go on to that in just a second, but the long and short of it is my magic trick. And the thing that made it so that I was able to help my students was that I treated them like people. And that had a really positive effect, but there were also some things that were just a little bit beyond that. There were some behaviors that from my perspective, were a total mystery. And it wasn't until I encountered behavior analysis and learned about um, radical behaviorism, operant behavior, and all these different things that I was able to truly start pulling out the stops and helping and supporting the, the kids that I love so much. 
I made the decision to move into behavior analysis 100% of the time because I was burning out as a teacher. Um, schools just don't get enough support, and they're always bl- teachers are always blamed for when things aren't going right. When the reality is, is that schools need more resources and better training. But regardless, I decided that my focus on behavior analysis specifically uh, would be more beneficial, and I really love what I do. Bearded behaviorist came from when I was going to school, and it's a long story, but basically in response to the way that a professor treated me, when I provided feedback that was asked for, I was punished for for my honesty and for fulfilling an assignment. And the feedback, I said it much more nicely than this, but basically was why isn't this course using behavior analysis to teach behavior analysis? It's not interesting. It's not fun. It's boring. Again, I didn't say exactly that way, but that I, I, and I gave examples of how to fix it. And because the teacher punished me and I didn't get a grade for that assignment and all this other stuff, I thought I chewed on it and thought on it. And a couple months later, I started bearded behaviorist where I was teaching behavior analysis through memes and through fun little stories and, and things like that. And apparently it hit the right nerve or I guess the hit the right audience because I very quickly became well known and I'm very surprised by it still because I am by no means a expert in the field, but I do love it. And because I'm also a loud autistic, as I like to put it, I was able to speak up and tell a little bit about myself and what it's like being neurodivergent and a behavior analyst. And just so you all know, there are many autistic behavior analysts in the field. And we, without, as far as I know, without any hesitation, are all taking almost identical stances on George Rotenberg Center and all this stuff. So it's not just me who's an anomaly. There's quite a few of us out there. I just happen to be really loud. I just happened to find you because you are really loud. But I think I was surprised at how many autistic behavior analysts there are because there are tons. So how did you first learn about Judge Rotenberg Center and what was going on there? So I first learned about Judge Rotenberg Center when I was investigating becoming a behavior analyst and I went into some of the autistic communities. I went into applied behavior analysis knowing about that bad history with autistics. And my attitude was, well, it looks like the sciences sound. It's all has to do with the application. And somebody mentioned in one of these communities, Judge Rotenberg Center and, and the electroshock. And I have to say, I'm a little bit ashamed of this. At the time, I dismissed what they were saying because I thought they were talking about electroshock therapy, which is a application of electricity to help with depression and because I knew a little bit about that and I didn't connect the dots that there was this contingent electroshock and electroshock therapy are not the same thing, I assumed that these people were opposed to the use of electroshock therapy, not contingent electric shock. And so I was like, well, why would they have issue with that? The people are sedated and there's a doctor who's there and it really helps with depression. So it wasn't until... About a year and a half, two years later, that I really started to learn what was going on at JRC and how they're using this. And if this is the first podcast you've heard 
for this particular topic, like the fact that the devices used are at least 10 times more powerful than your typical taser or stun gun is just insane to me. That's incredibly painful. Having experienced being stunned by a stun gun, I wanted to know what it was like to be stunned by a stun gun and hit with pepper spray when I was a teenager. Uh, and I and I have a police officer friend who, <laughs> after getting permission from my parents, <laughs> uh, allowed for me to experience that. And so I know what it feels like. And that's just a brief, very moment where uh, up to 4.5 milliamps is hits you. And that was with resistance of my clothing. And it hurt a lot. I can't imagine somebody who has an, uh, five electrodes strapped to their body being shocked randomly at any one place, I can't imagine how that would have any change in their behavior other than to increase aggression and to make them live in a, in a state of mind where they're constantly under threat. I know that if I was constantly poked and prodded and treated that way, I would probably get really violent very quickly. I think anyone would, whether you have um, a diagnosis or not. I think anyone can be provoked. And I think that's exactly what happens when you strap someone down, take away all their rights and repeatedly shock them. So let's talk a little bit about ABA. I know that some in the autistic community feel that ABA hasn't listened. And, you know, there's been this struggle between the two sides. So I think you bring us a great perspective because you are autistic and a behavior analyst. So let's talk about what problems you see in ABA and how we can change that because we need those in the field to start speaking out to help end this because there's a lot. We're dealing with a situation where we're, we're, we're seeing moral disengagement. And I have to do a shout out to my friend, Lewis, who worked as an RBT and who he himself is autistic uh, and um, is trans. And when Lewis realized what was going on, Lewis decided to move in a different direction. And, and so Lewis and I talk a, a lot together and it's really fun because Lewis, he's constantly talking about the problems with ABA and because he and I've had these conversations about these things has been able to see that it has a lot more to do with the application than anything else. But Lewis also introduced me to something called moral disengagement theory. And Interestingly, the creator or theorist, principal theorist behind moral disengagement uh, is himself has some behavior analytic training, uh, Albert Bandura, but he's also considered a social psychologist. And so we have ourselves a situation where a theorist who has behavior analytic grounding and knowledge comes up with a theory that helps us understand a little bit better about what's happening. And there are several different mechanisms that occur. And I'm still learning. So if I get something wrong here, I am a-okay with that. Please correct me. <laughs> but uh, that's to the audience, of course. But we have basically the mechanisms are we've got moral justification. So that's kind of thinking, well, this person needs this. They're, this person would obviously not do so well without it. So therefore, we need to uh, come up with things and ways to help them. And if it causes them pain, that's okay, because it's really for their own good. Then there's the euphemistic labeling. So uh, JRC is wonderful at this one. And by wonderful, I mean horrible, because 
they consequate people. They don't shock them. They consequate them. And behavior analysis itself, we have language because it's clinical language um, that frequently will create that euphemistic labeling too, like, for example, elopement and SIB, self-injurious behavior. There's always that risk of euphemistic labeling using existing clinical language to, to desensitize. So that's also careful and important to be aware of, uh, regardless of what field you're in. Then there's the advantageous comparison. So advantageous comparison is where the comparison you make is on extreme. This is kind of a straw man situation if you are familiar with logical uh, reasoning and logical fallacies. So it's kind of like, well, you know, at least we're not raping them. I hate to say that because it's it sounds awful to say, but advantageous comparison happens all the time in all sorts of situations. And in this particular situation, the advantageous comparison is, well, we could be pinching them. We're not doing that anymore. Right. Or or things like that. Displacement of responsibility. This most frequently happens when there's a supervisor supervisee situation. And when it comes to the employees and what I've heard from employees of and former employees of JRC, this happens quite a bit. And that is, well, it's not my responsibility because I was told what that I was supposed to do this. So I need to trust this other person. And then, of course, diffusion of responsibility is kind of similar, but it's more of a, well, the group justifies this. This is okay. And so that's where, well, the BACB hasn't intervened and the uh, ABAI hasn't done anything about this. So therefore, it must be okay because otherwise they would have done something. Then there's the disregarding or misrepresenting injurious consequences. And we see this a lot with JRC, especially with the court documents where they use, they undervalue the harm that's being done, or in some cases, they've straight up lied and then been caught in the lie because of video evidence or because of uh, people like Jennifer who are speaking out and saying, uh -uh, that's not how it happened. So that, that misrepresentation or disregarding of the injurious consequences. And then last but not least, we have dehumanization. And unfortunately, this is the one that Behavior analysts as a whole are, are um, really guilty of, and it's not just behavior analysts, but since I'm speaking to my field, which I love and I really care for and I want us to be better, I feel like this is something that we just need to work on. And that is looking at autism as something that needs to be fixed as a disorder. And really, that's the medical model. And behavior analysts, our philosophy does not align with that. Um, just to give you an idea of, of, to understand this, the foundational philosophy of radical behaviorism is that all behavior is rational. I'm going to say that one more time. All behavior is rational. You realize you're saying that on a true crime podcast, right? Yes. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> and, and, but, but the thing is, is that Behavior analysis is about looking at the rules that govern behavior and, and behaviors follow rules. And that's what the research, early research that has been done on behaviorism has led us to realizing it started with Pavlov and then there was Watson and the, and the, um, in his movement and, uh, the methodological behaviors very quickly 
lost out to the radical behaviorists because the methodological behaviorists said that the only thing that counts as behavior is something you can see. And yet B.F. Skinner and, and those like him were like, no, thoughts, feelings, and emotions, memories, all those are behaviors. Just because we can't see them doesn't mean someone can't see them. The observer of one is the person who can see them. So any behavior analyst who's saying that thoughts, feelings, emotions don't count as behavior, they've drifted away from our core foundation as a philosophy. And yes, it's more difficult to work with those internal behaviors or private events, as we like to call them. But interestingly, one of the biggest developments in behavior analysis is due to some, a theory called relational frame theory. And this, this theory, we believe we figured out where the mind comes from. And it has to do with our linguistic abilities and our ability to draw connections between things. And the really interesting thing about this is that the application of this towards mental health is something called acceptance and commitment therapy. And acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, um, is actually connecting social psychologists, cognitive psychologists, and behavior analysts. So the science itself is expanding, and we're moving into we're moving away from well, not away. We're we're improving the science to the point that now radical behaviorists can also be something called a functional contextualist, which is we look at the function and the context of the behavior. So to realize that the social model of, uh, of autism, which looks at autism as being a neurotype, a way that the neurological structure is formed, and that that neurotype informs preferences and, and helps shape certain behaviors and increases the probability of certain behaviors over other behaviors, that's more in line with what the core philosophy of behavior philosophy of what behavior analysis is than the medical model. And yet the reason why the medical model is the one that's so thoroughly followed is because insurance pays the bills. And insurance cares about the medical model and the medical diagnoses. But if you look at behavior as having a function and that it's rational, then you can't say, oh, well, there's something wrong with this person. You can say that in within the within that core philosophy, if we're consistent with it, you can say these are behaviors of concern, right? Because if the person is beating their head against a wall or if they're aggressing against other people, yes, the behavior is rational, but that doesn't mean it's not concerning. And that's and that's where behavior analysts come in. But We've had this drift, and this drift has truly contributed towards that dehumanization component. And that's the hardest thing, is hearing people say things and then me just having to kind of bite my tongue and wait for the right moments to teach them. Because I also understand a little bit better about behavior now compared to when I was younger. When I was younger, I'd probably just rag on them, just straight up tell them, no, you're full of crap. But now I've learned that through consequences, learning through consequences, uh, that's behavior analysis in a nutshell, uh, that the best approach, the best way to 
make and initiate that change is to create a con connection with them and help them to see, oh, maybe this perspective is not the right perspective. I should shift my perspective. And I think that was the question that I had for you is what your message to those in your field would be. But you said it all right there. It, it has to end now. I know that there's people out here there who don't like me. I, I'm fully aware of it. I'm not a people pleaser. I, I, I accept that there are people who will decide that they don't care for me and they don't want me uh, to be anywhere near them or to be speaking the way I'm speaking. And that I accept that. But the reality is, is that we need to speak up and we need to change things. If Judge Rotenberg Center tomorrow were to stop using it on their own and be like, you know what, we need to we did need to change our approach. We need to really morally engage and connect with our, the people that we serve and start seeing them as people. I'd be like, OK, cool, let's do it. Now, give me some proof of that, because you have a history of behavior that's kind of concerning. But. I'm okay with that. Uh, I'm definitely not okay with certain people not getting criminal charges because that's concerning, but I'm okay with us moving forward and doing better. And that's what I'm going for here is saying we as a field need to own and take responsibility for the horrific things that have happened and are happening. And we need to stop it now. Not tomorrow, not next year, now, immediately. Here's the other thing that I, so I love behavior analysis as a, as a field. And there's so much that we can offer. But right now, as a field, behavior analysis needs to improve our ability to work with others. Right now, there's kind of this isolationism that's happening within the field of, well, you know, that other field of psychology or that other field of human services, they're not quite as good as us. And that goes into that justification, that kind of, that kind of elitism that, that comes along with that. And the reality is, is that behavior analysts, we can offer a lot and we can learn a lot. And we need to have that professional humility to be willing to learn. And I'll give you a perfect example of this. Um, Stephen ha Hassan's work with cults. I believe Stephen Hassan, <laughs> he's a counseling psychologist. I believe he's in social psychology is the branch. I could be wrong on that one. But he introduced something called the BITE model. Um, that stands for controlling behavior, controlling information, controlling thoughts, and co controlling emotional uh, responses. And interestingly, a lot of the things that I've been hearing from both former residents and former employees within Judge Rotenberg Center falls perfectly inside the bite model for what would be classified as a cult. And so um, because Stephen Hassan has very clearly pointed out that cults aren't limited to religions that there's actually economic and therapeutic cults this is a perfect application for seeing what the heck is going on and the thing that i love about that model is that he's basically created clear definitions of what constitutes a cult and that in in behavior analysis we call that a functional definition and so when you i'm looking at all these things that are being lined up by those researchers in cults and cult-like behaviors, I'm seeing 
operant conditioning characteristics. I'm seeing applications of punishment, which just so the audience knows, punishment doesn't mean aversive. Punishment just means that the behavior, the sorry, the stimulus following the behavior reduces future likelihood of that behavior or similar behaviors. So, for example, if I were to pronounce your name wrong and you were to say, no, it's this, and then moving forward, I pronounced your name correctly, then technically my mispronunciation had been punished. The problem is, is that we're dealing with aversive punishment and behavior analysts have lots of research that points to aversive punishment just doesn't work. Or if it does work, it works in the short term, but it doesn't actually initiate behavior change. And I'll give you a perfect example of aversive punishment in everyday life. When you're driving on the freeway or down the highway and you see a police officer, it doesn't matter how fast you're going, you check your speedometer and you tap your brakes. But does that stop you from speeding? No, because I'm going to be speeding the next day when I don't see that police officer. Exactly. So the behavior is only under control when the police officer is present. And so this, that's called stimulus control. And when the police officer is present, that's when the behavior will reduce. But otherwise, it won't change. And here's the thing. Now, insurance companies have figured this out. And with smart technology, there are insurance companies that give you a discount on your insurance if you install this app on your phone that tracks your location and your speed and tracks how you drive and basically uses analytics. And if you're being a safe driver, you get a discount. That's reinforcement. That's specifically something called negative reinforcement because negative means something's being taken away. The, the increased cost of your insurance goes down. So you're actually saving money. And there's a lot of misinformation about out there about how behavior analysis works and what it is, but there's also some correct information in how it's being applied. And when it's being applied in conditions where there's aversive control, that's where you have no choice but to do it, and the individual does not have choices, of course it's going to be perceived as abusive, punishing, and harmful. And um, I am a part of a group, and I'm by no means the one who has coined this movement. I am not. I will not take credit for that. But I, I'm a part of this movement towards creating trauma-informed behavior analysis, because the reality is, is that there is trauma, and trauma causes harm. And not only should we be aware of existing trauma for the people that we serve. Or really any organism we serve, because behavior analysts work with all sorts of animals, not just humans. But not only should we, we be aware of that history, but we should also be aware that we can ourselves cause trauma. And we need to make sure that because of the power that we have, the power to make or ruin someone's life... And I have that power. I can do some horrible things if I do not watch myself and I do not have other people keeping an eye on me too. And I love my colleagues who call me out because they're helping me to do better. I have that power to ruin someone's life and we have that power and we need to check ourselves or to use terminology from another group in society, check our privilege. That might be an applicable way of saying it because I have a lot of privilege and you know what yes I'm an autistic behavior analyst 
I'm an autistic adult. Yes, I'm ADHD. So I'm neurodivergent. I have these things that are part of me, but that doesn't change the fact that I have privilege. I have power. And so regardless of whether my voice is also a voice of an autistic, neurodivergent, ADHD individual, doesn't matter. I still need to listen to the people who are talking. And what I'm hearing consistently from the autistic community is behavior analysts are hurting us. Please stop. And when I hear someone say, ow, that hurts, my response isn't to gaslight them. My response isn't to say, no, it doesn't. You're just being soft. You're just being tender. Oh, you can get over it. My response when I, when I do something and someone says, ow, that hurts, is I pull back and I say, oh, what did I do? Let me try to fix it. Let me figure out what I'm doing wrong. How can I do better? And that's the way healthy people respond. People who are not being healthy, who have some other situation going on in their life where they're behaving in that way, well, they hurt other people. And trauma perpetuates trauma. And I don't know the histories of all the people who are causing this harm. But what I do know is when we morally disengage, we cause harm. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us, Brian. I want to personally thank you for all your behind the scenes help and answering questions when I didn't exactly know what was going on. Can you let everyone know where they can find you, follow you for more information? Um, so I am on all the major social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, even minds.com and TikTok. Although TikTok focuses more on how mental health practices around acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, you can also find me at anchor.fm slash obehave. That's the obehave podcast, which focuses on behavior analysis education, specifically with that trauma-informed characteristic added in. And then you can also learn more about ACT at act uh, at anchor.com slash ACT Natural Podcast. Um, that one is, both of them are focused more towards people who are learning about behavior analysis or who are practicing behavior analysts. But I try to make sure that the information is accessible and easy for people to understand. Also, if you are a behavior analyst and you want to learn more on how you can do better, uh, you can go to Mindful Behavior LLC, and we have all sorts of wonderful people, including Sam and Eric, who offer CEs and mentorships and coaching to help us do better. Because really, we can't operate alone. We need to work together on making this change. I would encourage everyone to go and find the Beauty Behaviorist on whatever platform you use most and give him a follow. You won't be disappointed. Thanks again for joining us, Brian. Let's reach out to Tara Vance and Kate Jones at Neuroclastic. Tara, Kate, if you guys want to start by introducing yourselves and telling us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. I'm Tara Vance. I'm the CEO and founder of Neuroclastic. We are an autistic-led nonprofit. Our primary operation is that we are a publication and we publish autistic voices. We have over 500 contributors already. Uh, just in the last couple years of operation, and that number grows daily. 
we catalog the autistic experience collectively. We have people in six continents. We have people who are, you know, semi-celebrity and, and professors and researchers. And we have non-speaking teenagers and people in uh, residential facilities, everything, <laughs> the entire autistic experience, people who live outside. So yeah, we we have a very uh, diverse uh, contributor base and we make resources for the world, <laughs> for employers, parents, teachers, everyone, service providers to better understand autistic people. My name's Kate Jones and I'm one of the team at Neuroclastic. Um, I think largely what I do there is um, lots of illustration of articles that people write um, to help give a, a visual language to the, the kinds of things that people write about. Um, yeah, that's, that's mainly my role. And, and from the autistic community's perspective, could you kind of share their feelings on the Judge Rotenberg Center? Because I don't think that's something that anybody's really asked. Yes, autistic activists and advocates and other disability activists have been protesting the Judge Rotenberg Center for 30 years in large and small ways. And at the, at the lobby, at the lobbying level, you know, physical on the ground protests, their websites set up. There has been this resistance from the autistic community for decades. And people, people know how horribly autistic people get treated. We are not surprised that this happens. We're surprised that it's state sanctioned. None of us are surprised that autistic people are being put through that because it's common for autistic people to, to suffer extreme abuse and to be conditioned and molded into compliance. Um, I know that not everyone at Judge Rotenberg Center is autistic, but um, we do also know that the majority of people there are are under the extremely heavy weight of knowing that not even the federal government, not the FDA, not the United Nations can protect us from Judge Rotenberg Center and the darker parts of the behavior industry. We know that our children could be taken from us for being autistic and put in a place like that. And a judge would turn over their rights to these <laughs> sadistic colonizers. That's what they are. You, they've colonized the bodies of people. Uh, they punish them for punishing themselves. They punish them for, for anything they think is going to become self-harm. They punish them with electroshock for saying no. And... We already know that autistic people get punished for saying no. We already know that the world tries to take our no away from us from early childhood. We're, we're conditioned to not say no. And so this is not very different from broader society. It's just a more extreme 
version that the government has failed to protect us from. Uh, the behavior industry has failed to protect us from this. And the behavior industry controls their destiny. They have way too much power. And that has caused a lot of autistic people to be actively suicidal. I'm aware of two attempts from very well-known uh, high-profile advocates um, and some hospitalizations in in recent months since the ban was overturned. It is having a profound uh, negative effect, a traumatic effect on our entire community. So yeah, that's where we are. We can't we know the world deprioritizes our rights and our bodily autonomy and, and just our rights to basic comforts. And with this in existence, with this still happening, uh, there's, there's no way anybody could say that any different, you know? Yeah. And I don't think that's something that a lot of people had considered is that What's happening at the Judge Rotenberg Center isn't only affecting the students at the Judge Rotenberg Center. I mean, that's got to be so scary for anyone with an autistic child, anyone with a disability. And, and I'm glad you, you pointed that out. Kate, is there anything you want to add? Yeah, I think just on that, on that topic of vicarious trauma, there, the, the damage that's being done at Judge Rotenberg is, is, is a violence to all of us. Um, we are all impacted by it and we are all seeing that it is state-sanctioned torture that wouldn't be legal if it was an animal you you know shot there are rules about shock collars on animals but it's okay for people like us to have our best attempts at setting boundaries and consenting or withdrawing consent punishable by torture it's it's the kind of stuff that you you associate with war crimes this is a war on autism disability yeah it's not legal to interrogate uh terrorists to stop a you know you could know that a city is about to be <laughs> attacked or a major landmark or something and a bunch of people might die if you don't get the information you need you still can't torture someone to get that information but you can torture an autistic non-speaking person with a movement disorder who has disinhibition and cannot control their movements for just existing as they are and being in distress. That is where we are as a society. That, that is our social place in the hierarchy of priorities in this world. That we can... You know, imagine the outrage if somebody shocked a zoo penguin or a panda. Absolutely. The whole world would protest. But if it's us, who cares? It doesn't right, or, even make the news. Or imagine if this was done in, let's say, a, a quote unquote normal school. So just a normal school child, because some of these students were children when they were shocked. If that was anywhere else, it would be the front page. And I think one of the things that was most profound to me was the UN called this torture years ago. The FDA stepped in. I mean, at this point, who has the power 
to end this? And what can we do? Because this has to end. I mean, this is literally state sanctioned torture. I, I like the way that you said it, because I think it does put it into perspective. Yeah, I think the behavior industry should be answering to this, just as people answer to war crimes. I agree. I agree. I think the BACB has to come out immediately. I mean, they're trying to reform their image and they say they're reforming their practices and they're listening and they're changing. But they they have this new certification specifically for working with people with autistic kids, autistic adults, whatever, autistics. And a person from the board of directors at Judge Rotenberg Center is on this panel and they call it a progressive behavior analyst. They use the word progressive and put this person on this new panel. And then they have uh, Robert Ross on that panel, who is the president of Mass ABA, Massachusetts, where Judge Rotenberg Center is, who's never, to my extensive searching and combing everything in his resume, which is like 80 pages long. <laughs> that's it. That's only a mild exaggeration. Um, I've never seen anything that indicates that he has any opposition to Judge Rotenberg Center. And if he's serving on committees with board members from there and and speaking at conferences with them and whatnot, he's not opposed. I cannot sleep at night. I, I can barely speak right now without falling apart. I The thought happened to me one day, it hit me, what if that happened to my child? And because I have, I have a daughter with uh, high support needs and I think in a different family that didn't understand her, that listened to the, to the wrong information. She's the happiest child in the world right now. But I think that that is because I have the right information and, and I'm wired to understand her. I'm, I'm an autistic rights activist, you know. Um, so, but most kids like my child do not have that kind of support from infancy and understanding that I have that privilege and the privilege of interacting with autistic experts uh, in autism from all over the world all the time. But the the real tragedy is that raising my daughter the way that I have is easy. It's so much easier than everything else everyone else is doing. It's so much, uh, you know, people talk about the financial burden of autism. It doesn't have to be that way. You know, we have we have a lot of fight. That is all that keeps us alive. You know, we have we have the highest suicide rate of any demographic. And in the last few years, I've lost a lot of friends. I lost my best friend that way. Her average lifespan is 38. And we do not die from medical issues. We die from stress-related heart conditions and suicide as their top two 
I did not know that. So what can we do to support you? I've been on neuroplastic. There is a ton of information there. So I would encourage everyone with an autistic child, anyone who has any interest in this, if you're autistic yourself, or if you just want to learn more, neuroplastic is the place to go for information. It's also the place to go for those who want to take action against the JRC. So go ahead and let us know where we can go, what the website is, and exactly what can be done because they need your support. That's the thing. The FDA, the UN, everyone's tried. So now it's up to us. So we have to get loud and we have to get angry and speak for those because Tara's right about something. It could be your child. It could be my child. It could be anyone's child. Some of these students, if you listened last week about Jennifer Masumba, her guardianship was stripped from her and her family had to fight to get her out of the Judge Rotenberg Center. So direct us where we can go and what we can do to support you. So if you go to neuroplastic.com and that's like plastic, but with a C instead of a P. So that basically translates to breaking your brain. Plastic means breaking. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll break your brain. We'll, we'll break all those harmful thought patterns and help you to better understand autistic people so that you don't think your only options are the Judge Rotenberg Center or something like that. So that we can stop painting this narrative that, because it's, it's a lie, it's a bull-faced lie to say, this is the only thing that works. No, it's not. It's absolutely not the only thing that works. We have lots of things that work, but the main thing that will make a difference is a paradigm shift. So if you go to, to neuroclastic.com, you will see at the top, uh, ban electroshock, and you click that, or you can go to judgerotenberg.center, and it will redirect you to that site. We have a form that you can send an email to every politician on a committee in Massachusetts who that's sitting on a bill right now that would ban aversives. Every time a similar bill has come up, they have they've just let it stagnate and done nothing with it. They all just die at this committee. So go on the website. All you have to do is enter your email address and your name and hit send. And that it takes 20 seconds. We have a prompt there. You can write your own prompt or use the one we have. Uh, we have all of the phone numbers and Twitter handles. Please please get loud on Twitter. That is effective activism in 2021. I was just going to say that um, lots of autistic people find it really difficult to make phone calls. If you're a neurotypical person or an autistic person that finds phone calls easy, you can be a great ally by making a call for us. And that's such a simple way that we can help. It's just a phone call. So please guys go to Neuroplastic, get an education like you wouldn't believe and Join us in the fight against the Judge Rotenberg Center. I want to thank you, Kate, and thank you, Tara, for joining us today. And I also want to thank you, Tara, for all your support throughout my time researching this case. You were so helpful, and I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thank you for being an, an accomplice to our community. We don't have enough. So please, if you're out there and you hear this, 
help us. We don't have the numbers. We have, we all, all of the autistic community has been working together. We all know everything about Judge Rotenberg Center, but we can't get anyone to listen. So thank you, Leah, for, for using your platform to be an accomplice and, and helping us. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. An accomplice. I love that. Let's all be an accomplice and help end this nightmare for the human beings that are still being subjected to this treatment at the Judge Rotenberg Center. We've got to do better. Share this story. Use the hashtag StopTheShock. Sign the petition. Go to judgerotenberg.center to email, call, or tweet Massachusetts lawmakers. As always, you can find more information on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these. New episodes drop every Thursday. I'll be bringing you an all new case next week and you won't want to miss it. More information can also be found at autistichoya.net. You can also go to Occupy the Judge Rotenberg Center on Facebook. The folks at Occupy the Judge Rotenberg Center have been at the forefront of this battle for over two decades. Check out The Bearded Behaviorist over at beardedbehaviorist.com, Sam and Eric over at Hops and Hooves, a humanity podcast, and Tara Vance over at neuroclastic.com. I'll link all these sources in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. Today, I leave you once again with Jennifer Masumba and her song, Girl, You're Gonna Fly. Take it away, Jen. Nestled inside your safety skin, your beauty was always there. As you clung to your reality Coupled with heart and pattern flare You become who you are, yeah Through your tragedy So come on outside sparkling eyes you've got life in your bones you've got love on your mind as you dip and you coast on the breeze in the sky you beautiful brown butterfly as night approaches you find your leaf and you rest on it gently you fold your wings and go to sleep Gently, gently Though you dream of the past It can't touch you now It's just memories, memories Memories, memories Till the sun starts to rise yeah, And the, the light hits your eyes And you open your wings And it don't matter why Yeah, It don't matter why No, it don't 
with sparkling you're eyes. Beautiful. You've got life in your bones. You're beautiful. You've got love on your mind. Beautiful. As you dip and you coast on the breeze in the sky, you beautiful brown butterfly. What if you could test your blood in your own home, but just a drop? New Pod Disney Plus. This machine is going to change the world. The Dropout. En helt ny original serie. Anybody who doubts my company doubts me. Inspireret af en sand historie. We have to stop her. You don't understand the business. You don't understand the science. The Dropout. Stream alle episoder nu. Eksklusivt på Disney Plus. 79 kroner om måneden. Abonnement kræves. Vilkår gælder.